Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to really think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time-poor but enthusiasm-rich primary teachers. This week, I'm joined once again by Christopher Such. Hello again. And together, we'll try to answer the question, how do you solve a problem like mathematics curricula? But first, Chris, what's you reading for? Uh, well, this week, same as last week, I've broken the rules a little bit. There's a couple of things I've um, been reading. On a recommendation from a friend, I've gone back to the book that goes with a, a famous BBC series called The Ascent of Man. Similar to what I mentioned last week about the idea of teachers, how valuable it can be to teachers getting an overview of the history of the world. This does the same thing, but from a science perspective, it is a glorious piece of work. The TV series itself is fantastic. And if you can track it down, do so. But you only realise, I think, the, or you, you realise to a greater extent, the poetry behind Jacob Bronowski's words when you see it in text and when you can pour over it. So I've been reading that, but that's not the main thing I want to mention. Um, I've gone back to a blog post. I hope this counts as significant reading. It feels significant given the number of times I've gone back to it. Mark McCourt's, uh, one of his more recent blogs, Models, Metaphors, Examples and Instruction, which I'm not going to go into huge detail of it. I'm just going to encourage people to go and read it for themselves. It talks about the relationship between how we teach, what we teach, and um, the models and metaphors behind that. It's superbly illustrative of the depth of knowledge that anyone who knows about maths pedagogy knows, or maths didactics as well, knows that Mark McCourt has. It's highly recommended. I, I, I love it. So uh, what are you reading, Kieran? I think this week, again, also fallen into the, the category of reading around subjects and prisoners of geography is what I've been reading this week. Um, and although the book is primarily focused on geopolitical relations, there's quite a lot about the, you know, the physical geography and how those relationships between nations are forged. So I think it's quite interesting in terms of, um, you know, actual geographic knowledge, because I'm learning so much more about them, um, you know, where countries are in relation to each other and how that affects how they behave with each other, but equally um, a lot about how things have changed over time. Um, so although a lot of it won't be applicable in the classroom, there's still quite a lot of interest that can be used to sort of set the scene, um, particularly in continents like uh, um, Asia, where I, I know I need to read more. Um, it feels a lot like a Malcolm Gladwell book, and I hope that it's the storytelling isn't there at the expense of the quality of the of the background research and the opinion formed, you know, because Gladwell reads really really well, but I know he likes to round off the edges quite a bit, um, and I'm I'm really fingers crossed. Hope that isn't the case because I find it really engaging from start to finish, and um, you know I think it's something worth reading if you want to develop an understanding of almost our place in the world but more importantly, how the world is sort of connected, you know, on a physical level. Uh, yeah, it's a great, uh, it's something I tackled a little while back. It's, um, yeah, it's terrific. I, I remember in particular the discussion of, of the border between China and India and the, the nature of that border and why 
relating to mountain ranges, why there's less likely to be direct conflict. But it's interesting to see in modern geopolitics that there are issues occurring relating to that border. And, and the idea, I love the discussion in there about this very weakly defined border between the two countries and the issues that that causes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really interesting book. I, um, I had a lot of time for that. It's on my Kindle, but I think it's possibly one that I regret not buying physically because of the the nature of what it talks about, because of how many references there are to maps that I imagine that start each chapter. So in this episode, we're going to take on how do you solve a problem like mathematics curricula? But I think before we do anything else, Chris, we need to establish what we mean by curriculum um, in the terms of this discussion that we're going to have. So what, what does curriculum mean to you? Well, for, I think it's such a broad topic that we really need to pare it down quite a lot if we're going to talk about it productively in the space of however, you know, half hour, an hour, however long this podcast um, lasts. I think we'll need to, for today's discussion, I think it's worth saying that we should probably, it's probably best that we talk about just what Dylan William might call the intent of the curriculum. In other words, the knowledge, skills, and sequencing. I, I'm aware, as I'm sure you are, that when it comes to discussions of curriculum, you can't really um, separate them entirely from discussions of pedagogical choices, of didactics. You can't separate them from discussions of assessment, of long-term curriculum development that relates to that assessment. But, if, but for today, what we're really talking about is what is it you've got planned out? For want of a better phrase, what have, you, what have we got on paper or the digital equivalent that says to teachers, this is what you're going to teach and this is the sequence in which you are going to teach it. So not the implementation or impact stuff or CPD and all these other really important stuff related to curriculum, but just that knowledge, skills and sequencing is what we're going to be discussing today. And on that note, the first and possibly most obvious question that I'm going to fire at you is, should schools attempt to build a maths curriculum from scratch? Great question. I think for me, the, abs the absolute answer is no, they should not. Um, because I think the time it would take to construct a curriculum that is sufficiently coherent and includes sufficient opportunity for pupils to get to grips with you know the real fundamental but also the meaty parts of mathematics will take a very long time you know i you and i've had this conversation before where i talk about it would take you know a team of experts quite a significant number of years if they were to just sit down in a room and try and hash out a curriculum you know until they'd finished it you know i'm in my in my opinion in my experience it's um it's a very brave thing to do and um, i'm just gonna interrupt there brave in the for those people who've watched the show brave in the yes minister sense oh that's a brave decision hmm, yeah good idea <laughs> sorry carry on i couldn't resist no yeah and um, you know I, I i choose brave because sometimes people won't have a choice you know this will be something that's given to them and they're and they're expected to conduct this piece of work um, and so i don't want to be disrespectful to them and um, because although i really enjoy something like this i think it would be the only thing i did for you know maybe two three years and even then i don't think i'd be happy with it and um, 
And, but possibly the greatest reason is because tried and tested curricula already exist in a number of forms. And so in terms of opportunity cost, if we are to spend the time that's necessary to make something of a really, really high quality, can we justify the fact that we've put that manpower into something that already exists? You know, because and when I when I talk about textbooks and how each jurisdiction around the world has its own unique combination of pedagogy and content, and if if we if we can think something, it's probably being done in either some state in America because they're all quite autonomous, done somewhere in Europe, somewhere in Asia, so that it makes the needing to make something an obsolete behavior. I don't know if that's proper use of obsolete, but it, it, it's, it's something we don't need to do. And so in terms of preserving the time of our teachers, because our maths leads are normally going to be teachers, I think it's unwise use of time. And so for me, I think things that work and work really well exist. So I think we should use those. What about you, Chris? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the expression that comes to mind is reinventing the wheel, but that seems unfair given the nature of what we're talking about. It's more like reinventing the internal combustion engine. It's so complex that the idea of someone, an individual person or even a team within a school sitting down and saying, without reference to other established curricular products that exist, that we're just going to put something together. Even if you did a fabulous job of that, what's going on with the rest of the school in the half a decade that that's going to take? I've seen in the past some pretty brave attempts to put something together, but so often what ends up being put together if it's made from scratch is a product or is it or a sequence that simply lacks lacks elements of the curriculum that hasn't thought about the sequencing of manipulatives that just has yeah it's just missed out stuff as we're going to talk about a little bit later on there are so many tiny bits and pieces there are these minutiae that you have to think through from well if we're, we're measuring things in year two with rulers are we talking about to the nearest centimeter, because if we're not, then we have to make sure that children have learned about decimals or fractions, which is too early for year two. And there are thousands upon thousands of these tiny decisions that have to go in the right place. Now, I can imagine someone on who's listening to this thinking, well, obviously we're not gonna build from scratch. We've got the national curriculum. And yes, that does provide a sequence, no doubt. That gives you something of a jumping off point, but it's barely even a skeleton. To, to work from if you are genuinely thinking about putting together a curriculum for your school. There are things out there. None of them are perfect, but all of them are going to provide you almost certainly um, with a starting point that is better than a blank piece of paper or just the national curriculum. Yeah, I think um, we, we have quite rich discussions online and in person to, to an extent um, about the nuances of curriculum sequence and like the most recent one I can think of is when we were talking about number lines and where they feature. And I, I don't think you get to have that level of thought if there's nothing there at all, because you were just thinking about, well, what are the, what are the basics I need to get into this curriculum? What's the, the, you know, the fundamental sequence. And then, as you say, you know, only when you've got something 
that exists that you can consider in reference to other points? Can you think about, well, when does money and decimalization feature in this? You know, is that year four when children are learning about um, the place value of, of decimal numbers? Or is that in year two where, for instance, the English national curriculum, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, suggests that no. they should be inter introduced? You're dead right. That's I mean, year two is where they talk about uh, children understanding different representations of number, including the number line. So, yeah, and, and again, interpreting what that means, because some people interpret that to mean, well, they need to be able to do calculations using a number line. Well, that's that depends on how you want to interpret that. I see it more in a place value side of things. Um, I'm not hugely a fan of number lines in year two. But again, I think this speaks to something larger in that, as you say, if I were to sit down and try and build a curriculum from scratch, there's no doubt that I would make what I now consider to be errors like putting number lines in year one, because I would be so concerned with everything I needed to do that I wouldn't have the time to deal with the, the bits and pieces here or there. Yeah. But so yeah, the short answer I think we both agree on is absolutely not do not attempt to construct your own maths curriculum without reference to you know a lot of the excellent bits and pieces the excellent curriculum products that already exist and so what are your guiding principles for assessing the efficacy of a curriculum you know or creating your own if you need to and what do you seek to avoid when bringing in a curriculum it's a it's a really difficult question to answer I've taken notes on it in preparation for this, and I'm, but despite that, I'm no doubt going to miss out things. I would say first and foremost, my guiding principle is you have to look at sequencing. If, you, if someone's made something, if we're looking at the efficacy of something that's already been made, the first thing I do is I, I just pick random aspects of this curriculum and then start to say, oh, okay, have the prerequisites been taught? Have they been there in good time? If they're using particular models or um, manipulatives in order to teach these have children got the requisite experience etc and then where is this going what, what does this support further down the curriculum it's really easy actually to see a poorly sequenced curriculum it's incredibly difficult to do but in terms of spotting a bad one it doesn't take more than an hour or two of actually looking at things and saying well hang on a minute why is this here and often the answer to why is this here is just because so first and foremost, I look at sequencing in particular, are the prerequisites for every bit of information, every, every skill that you want to get across, have they been in place in a significant amount of time before you're teaching that to allow children to have embedded it? This could go on for a while, Kieran. I hope you don't mind. I've got, like, I've got quite a few. So that'd be my first one, sequencing. The second, early maths. That... I've seen a few curriculum products that exist and that are otherwise excellent. And I've also seen some curricula that schools have constructed where the early math stuff just is not strong enough. If in doubt, look at the NCETM spines, look at learning trajectories in particular, fabulous website and wonderful accompanying books. So early maths are the things like um, supertizing, which we've just discussed before, principles of counting, number sense, that crucial development of spatial awareness that begins in EYFS but does need to be built upon, of course, in year one and year two. Is that all there? It sounds obvious to say, it isn't, sometimes it isn't just a case of how well done is this. It's just, is it there? Is there, so, is the, is supertizing discussed in the curriculum? 
Um, beyond that, I would talk about the next thing would be development of mental skills over time. Specifically, how are you building up children's understanding of number bonds and then their application, and then later in the curriculum, multiplication tables and their application. And so when I say the application, obviously I mean things like, if you know seven and three, do you can you apply that to 70 and 30 0 0.7 and 0 0.3 what's that progression in mental arithmetic like that's massive and i think doesn't often get the attention it deserves i'll mention one more and then i'll bring you in because i could talk about this for hours but i a, a sensible progression in representation usage is a, is a a red flag to me if that's not something that's been thought about you see schools introducing bar models in say year three and oh we're going to introduce these because we're now working on word problems well okay you're a couple of years too late at least you need to be introducing them with numbers that children are comfortable with further down the school and seeing them just as a way of representing calculations before you can use them as a tool with word problems so bar models are just one example but what is your progression of representation usage just well, just use one more example of the minutiae that you'd be looking for in a quality curriculum. If you are using deans, so the thou the usual thousand deans block, you know, the base 10 block, the big chunky one. If you're using that to represent one when you're talking about decimals late later on, so you can use the slice to represent 0 0.1, et cetera, et cetera, have you left a significant amount of time between using them in say year three or your year two to talk about hundreds, tens, thousands place value, because if you haven't left that gap, then children are going, to, are going to get confused. So it's with your, has the representation usage been that carefully thought about? I'm going to hand it back over to you and ask, well, what things do you look for? And I will, if, if there's anything, if I've got any time to add any more bits and pieces, I'll, I'll do so in a moment. But what do you look for, Kieran? Um, you know, I think you, you've hit a lot of the really key ideas, you know, and, you know, the, the sequence of representation is important for me that almost a cohesion between ideas, as you say, you know, does everything feed in? Is there enough time? And really, it's, it's those in-depth decisions that you want to take out of the hands of your teachers, because like I think I've said before, you want your teachers focusing on how they're going to teach things and rather than what they're going to teach, you know? And um, I think that that helps massively in the classroom. I think one thing that definitely stands out to me is when a lot of the legwork on making ideas mathematically rich and going deeper into the mathematics, are already present because I think that is somewhere that we struggle as a as a phase and you know in terms of primary education and we don't necessarily have the time to really get under the skin of the mathematics as much as we would want to or as much as we should and so if there's at least some provision for this is where we're going to you know you've got the sort of minimum benchmark this is what your typical pupil will achieve and then here we're going a little bit further i think that's massively helpful because it almost unlocks the possibilities in terms of what you do when you want to challenge a pupil in, in a certain way and um, and that may just be examples where you're 
asking a question in a different way. And, you know, for instance, one of my favorite ones further down the school is, you know, if you ask directly which number bond while giving one of the add-ins, and if you tweak that to ask what are the possible bonds, then you've unlocked a different type of thinking about that problem. Does that make sense? I don't know if it's, it's really hard to get across in words, but say- No, no, I know, I know exactly what you think. Yeah, what you mean. Yeah, asking a child, you know, what goes with 17 to make 20 is a very different business to what different ways are there to make 20 using integers, if that's the, you know, the, what the age group you're looking at. Because as well as talking about number bonds, you're starting to talk about, um, logic, logical thinking, making lists um, in order to ensure that you've, you've exhausted all possibilities and then represent and using those lists in a way that is, as I say, logical and sequenced to make sure you've covered all possibilities. Yeah, you're op it's amazing how you can take a single question, make it just a little bit open-ended and you're revealing a whole different area of mathematics to young children. Yeah, because I think... With one example, you can then take that and incorporate it into your practice later on. And so because the curricula is already in existence, because the sequence is already decided, you can then, as say subject leader, focus your teacher's attention on well, why have they chosen that question? And then that becomes a part of the practice. And then everybody's getting sort of a really rich experience of mathematics. So that, that would probably be, you know, the only additional thing, because I'm trying to think of all the things we've covered before. and I think we've we've had a lot of the key sort of features for me, you know, that pedagogic model, because as we said last week, whatever you choose will define how mathematics looks in the classroom. And so you need to be certain, having thought about all the things that you've just outlined, that this is what you want and this is what you think is best for your kids. I think that yeah, that's the ultimate decision is does this embody how we feel mathematics is in our school? You know, I think. But um, yeah, I think you hit all the key. Super. I, I'm sure I've heard, like, I'm going to say research suggests, but I can't pinpoint the paper in my head. It's something I've seen in a, an edu Twitter discussion. So it's that kind of in the air. But I'm sure I saw people discussing the idea. And I think it makes a lot of sense that children's view of what mathematics is, is largely dependent on the way that it, they see it in the classroom. So if they are engaged in rich problem solving on a reg regular basis, they see it as a subject that involves and has as a key component, rich problem solving. If they see it as churning through activities where then once they've understood it, they're going to get everything right and they're looking to get ticks, then this sense of oh I want it's a it's a subject where I do lots of questions and get lots of things right will be their view of mathematics. We have to accept that our pedagogical choices will lead children's view of the entire subject to be different depending on what we choose. I would add, thinking about what you've said there, a few of the bits and pieces that I that I look for or I would look for if someone said, come and have a look at this curriculum, we've put it together and maybe they've made a good decision and they've put it together in reference to something else that already exists. But if they said, come and have a look at this, what I would be looking for, I've already mentioned the, um, the importance of sequencing, particularly looking at prerequisites, early number sense, development of mental skills over time, progression of representation usage. I would add to that language consistency. So for example, if children are learning 
early doors to use words like ad end or subtrahend or minuend is that consistently used across the school because it's going to take some time for children to pick up these useful bits of vocabulary should you choose to use them and that investment is going to pay off but only if that's part of your curriculum if teachers in year five can rely on the fact that the children will know what a minuend subtrahend ad end etc is beyond uh, language consistency it's going to seem a little bit niche that children without the reference to this phrase i think their understanding of the field axioms and structures of arithmetic are things that you can start implementing into a curriculum right at the very beginning through the kind of things they do in the classroom i think field axioms in particular looking at commutativity and um, associativity of addition through the um, use of equipment, double-sided counters, etc. in year one, the children being able to understand almost inherently that seven and five is the same thing as five and seven and 70 and 50 is the same thing as 50 and 70, etc. etc. I would also look, and this is I know this leans in a little bit into an aspect we said we weren't going to talk about but if I were to look at a curriculum, I'd be really keen to see some support for teachers in terms of pitch and variety when they come to teach an individual topic. I think, if, if well, if I think back to the lessons that I've observed or supported with, where lessons commonly go wrong with perfectly excellent teachers is pitch. And it can be because te a teacher has moved to a new year group. It can be because they're new to the profession. But pitch is such a difficult thing to know until you've taught in that year group for a while. And I think part of a curriculum needs to support teachers in saying, oh, we, you're teaching half, halves of amounts in this lesson, say. Well, what are we talking about? Are we talking about halves of even numbers? Because we're getting into some trickier stuff if we're talking halves of, halves of odd numbers. Are we talking halves only of numbers inside 20? So children are applying their... Um, two their knowledge of their two times table, et cetera, et cetera. And that's where some support with pitch is so valuable. Yeah, that's a, that's a conversation I have with teachers quite a lot, in when, especially when we're looking at things like my turn, your turn, and why a question is similar to the one that we've just modeled. You know, you'll quite often find that there'll be a key difference between what you've just done and what the pupils have done when really you, you want to control for that, don't you? Um, so that it's really interesting you mentioned that because that's something that I spend quite a lot of time talking to people about because that's the level we can go to in terms of why have we made this decision? Um, and so if, like, as you say, if you've got like a really carefully constructed sequence of questions available, then you've got, and you give teachers time to think about it, then I think that, that that's a sign of a really strong sort of curriculum that you've got or the resources that you're, you're utilizing in the school. Yeah, sorry for interrupting, Chris. No, no, please. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. Another thing I think that absolutely, and it relates to something you were talking about earlier, something that is essential is that embedding of problem solving within a curriculum. I was tempted to say reasoning and problem solving, but I think reasoning in itself is a lot down to pedagogical choices in the moment. For those people, I think the idea of talking about reasoning and problem, problem solving is an episode entirely in itself. So I'm not going to go too far into this, but I think it's worth noting that teachers, ideally, when they come to teach a curriculum, 
shouldn't be hunting around for problems that they're going to include for different topics or for different lessons, because as soon as they're doing that, they don't have the time to plan the individual lesson itself. And they're not necessarily going to find something that is of a the kind of quality that we would be looking for. And great problem solving resources are already out there. So putting them somewhere for teachers and then embedding them within a curriculum is a sign that this is a curriculum that has been thought through. So that's definitely one thing I'd be looking for when we were assessing whether a curriculum has had done its job. Last couple of things, I think a curriculum being structured to allow for, and this is a phrase you might hear me use a few times in the future, realistic flexibility. Allowing teachers to say, no, that didn't work today, going to need to teach it again tomorrow, but at the same time, not allowing an experienced teacher to spend four weeks on this very small aspect of percentages. So a, a sort of realistic flexibility and obviously how that works will depend on the, what you have in school in terms of your curriculum. But if that's not in there and teachers are just plodding through, I'm doing this and then I'm doing this and then I'm doing this and whether it works or not, oh, it's going to be picked up at some point. That's not ideal. So I think the curriculum being structured to allow for that flexibility is important. And the final thing, and I think this links to the mental mathematics I talked about earlier, but I think it's worth explicitly giving its own moment, is the idea of thinking about what your little and often components are for your curriculum. When you come to teach something like number bonds, yes, there may be some key ideas and concepts that you want to discuss in the space of a, a lesson or 15 but that doesn't mean that those 15 lessons are going to help teach children to reach the point that they need to in order to reliably recall those number bonds having a little and often structure either to your school day or to your lessons that allows children to tackle something just for five minutes over the space of a few months, I think is essential. I, th I think if you are saying, trying to teach children their number bonds or their multiplication tables, and you're not saying, oh, okay, well, this is something we've started and we're going to be taking it a small piece at a time, be it through quizzes or games, however you do it. If you're not doing that little, little and often uh, way of teaching these things, that's going to take several months, then you're probably not teaching it for most children, frankly. Those would be my 10. <laughs> I've just worked out that it, yeah, it is 10. The sequencing, the early number and early spatial awareness stuff, the development of mental math skills over time, the progression of representation usage, that consistency of language, getting in their structures of arithmetic and axioms and making sure that they begin where they're supposed to. Support with pitch and variety, making sure problem solving's in there, making sure the curriculum allows for realistic flexibility and little and often components that are clearly stated to teachers so they know which things they're, they're going to begin in different year groups. All of those things are essential. And I think, if anything, me talking through those 10 things just hammers home what a complex business putting together a maths curriculum really is. Yeah, you say that. And even the job of deciding which curricula you'd like to utilize is complex based on, based on you know all those ideas and all those things you've got to be thinking about. So if you're trying to do that from scratch yourself, um, you know, it, it really is a mammoth task. So I think I think we've been pretty clear on 
what we value as our guiding principles, our ideal situation. But I think we also need to take account of the reality that most schools will find, most leaders will find themselves in. You know, what would your what would your recommendation be for anyone who did have to create a curriculum from from scratch? Say, I mean, like you say, we've talked about what the ideal situation would be. I would say find a starting point, find something, find a product that you can use as your starting point. I've I've not used it in a great detail, but I've read it quite closely. As a jumping off point for building a curriculum, I don't think that White Rose is the worst thing out there. Um, I think that regardless of what you pick, be it White Rose or you, whether you go for complete maths, whatever you do, having something that can form a skeleton for your maths curriculum is always advisable over starting with just the national curriculum and building from there. And, and if there's literally no money, then like I say, White Rose is free. Have a look at it, see if it can support what you're doing. It's bound to be but far better than starting from scratch. Yeah, that seems fair. Um, because obviously we've got our ideal situation in mind, but I think it's also useful to help those who, whose reality is that of needing to devise something that will support their pupils getting a really rich mathematics education. So I think that's a, that's a very good starting point. Yeah, absolutely. That leads us quite nicely to the final question of this section, what is the minimum then that teachers should be provided with? Cool. Um, well, I think I'll probably skip over stuff that we've covered in quite a lot of detail already. Um, for instance, it's pretty clear that the sequence needs to be there. You know, so teachers know, need to know exactly what they're going to teach and when we imagine they're going to teach it, you know, because that that's time we don't have. Um, I think is individual lesson by lesson planning necessary? Um, sometimes it's helpful. You know, for instance, like you say, if you've got a high quality textbook and they've sequenced everything to the nth degree, then I think it's really useful. But if you're given something in the middle, then I think that's where I've seen confusion arise from that sort of situation. We're given a broad overview but not precise direction as to what the what the unit will look like exactly. You know, I think you either need to be very vague or very precise. I think in the middle, it becomes a bit too muddy, you know, and, and that might sound a bit counterintuitive. But I think if you give a teacher, this is what's going to this is what's going to be learned by the end of the sequence. It's much easier to deal with that than it is to deal with something that falls in between prescription and vagary. I'm probably a little bit more didactic in the other sense than you are. I, I really think teachers need to be provided with a sequence of learning points. I think an experienced teacher can pick up a, you know, this is, these are the expectations for the end of this three-week unit and can do a good job of it. I don't think that I, in my first few years of teaching, could have done a good job of that, really without a sequence of learning points now that's not the same thing as a sequence of lessons that's not to say monday do this tuesday do this wednesday do this it might be that a learning point takes 20 minutes and another one takes three lessons and it might be that those that 20 minutes or three lessons is different depending on the class you've got but at the same time saying that first the children will need to learn this and then this will help them to learn this and then these two things will combine so that they can learn this third thing is i, I, th I think a, a bare minimum 
for teachers personally. I, I appreciate where you're coming from. I think there are experienced math teachers out there, those that have worked in the same year group for a long time, where you can say we're teaching year five fractions and they've got in their head what they're going to do lesson by lesson. And they've got no problems with that. They do not need the individual learning points spelled out. That said, I don't think that's hugely common. And I think really we need to be providing something that's going to work for all of our teachers rather than just the most experienced. So for me, a sequence of learning points for each topic would be my bare minimum. And like I say, that's different. That's not saying lesson by lesson by lesson. It's saying in this topic, kids are going to learn these 10 things in this order. I think it's essential personally. Yeah. And um, I must have done a really bad job of explaining what I thought, because in my mind, that's the that's the that, that's the vague the vague area. That's the least you give you give teachers, and in the most prescriptive area, you're giving them. Oh, really? Giving them a script. You know, you essentially tell them this is what happens, and this is the order it happens in. You know, which some textbooks do. And that, oh, I see. So, I see. Oh, no, no, I see, I see exactly what you mean. No, I think I misinterpreted you there. I I, I get exactly where you're coming from there. So yeah, I, we both agree that the bare minimum is this learning point by learning point structure. And that if you want to go beyond that, and I think that's something we'll talk about at a later date, the advantages potentially of going beyond that, then you can start to say, well, in the first aspect of this learning point, be it as referring back to something I talked about earlier, halves of uh, multiples of two, this is the first stage of that. And then this is the second stage of that. And then this is the representation you want to use for that, et cetera. Yeah, you can absolutely be more prescriptive. I, I agree exactly with you then. The, the vaguer version, if that is a learning point by learning point thing. I think really where I got confused there was uh, when you used the word topic, because in my head, I think of topic as three weeks on fractions. That's what I mean by topic. Whereas I think what you were referring to there is an individual learning point. So again, this is interesting because this is where the importance of being precise with our language and making sure we have shared definitions across the profession within our schools is really valuable. So you don't end up uh, talking across each other as I unfortunately did just then, Kieran. Sorry about that. No, no. But I yeah, so we've we've definitely decided that sequence of learning points, the kids are going to learn this and then they're going to learn this is essential. You can't just say this is this is these are the end this is the end result of this three weeks on fractions. Make sure they get there. That's just not enough. Yeah. And um, yeah, and I think the less experienced, the more we the more we give them, you know. It, my preference is definitely for the prescriptive um, and then eventually over time you make it your own you know but over over many many years i think another thing you give them is you give them some sort of indication of the accompanying models and images and representations because they're not necessarily something that inexperienced teachers are going to come to you know magically by themselves you know base 10 equipment is is reasonably common we have used it as good ourselves but uh, but the actual anything beyond that we're going to need to be pretty explicit in terms of this is this is the best situation for this. This is the ideal use of this this manipulative this representation. You know this type of bar in this type of scenario is helpful, um, and then you know perhaps through CPD explain why. But I think at the, as a bare minimum, the document makes reference to in this situation, this these are the models and images that you want to use, and um, simply because. And that's the knowledge that you build up over a decade, you know, that doesn't happen overnight. And, and it's very unlikely that it's going to happen in the number of lessons for mathematics education that are available during our training, you know, and 
And then I think we give them frequent access to those who are more expert. And so it's not necessarily a concrete thing. Um, but for instance, we want our inexperienced teachers planning with someone who has walked that path before. Or we want regular meetings where they can talk about subject-specific content. Because I think that's where a more experienced other, and I'm sure that, 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 that that's a phrase that's been used somewhere, and I hope I'm not misappropriating it, but essentially you can point out the things that are worth noticing if someone is has experienced the curriculum and then you can point out places that they can make connections with other things that they're about to see or that they may see the next time they come back to it. Um, yeah, I think that, that, that that's really powerful because it's, it's normally through conversations and through engagement and reflection that we become better at what we do. And I think the best way to get the most out of your curriculum is to give your teachers the opportunity to work with others so that those moments happen. You know, I think if you're working on your own or if one person's doing the English, then, and one person's doing the maths, the person doing the English isn't having the same thoughts as the person who's done the maths. Um, and the person who's done the maths on their own isn't having the same thoughts that they would be having if they're having a dialogue, you know? So I think that, that would probably be one of the most important things. And um, though I think everything we've discussed tonight or today is really important. And um, yeah, I think that's fundamental. What would you, Chris? So far, we've talked about the importance of sequencing the learning points, suggested represent, making sure that the representations are going to use are not just suggested to teachers, but it's it's shown what they're going to use and when. The fact that the idea of them getting a reasonable level of support from those more experienced, including potentially maths coordinator or anyone who's free. Obviously, this is a challenge because you know if you work in a smaller school and an NQT is taking year six on their own or year five on their own and their PPA is naturally on their own. Finding the time to allow for those sorts of conversations isn't necessarily the easiest thing in the world, but it is, it is vital that it happens for their professional development and for the students, obviously. I would say, and this goes back to something we talked about earlier, we're obviously going to cover a old ground a little bit here, but I think support with pitch and variety of a given learning point so if and because we're talking about the bare minimum here if we're working in the situation where we say uh, teachers have got it everything explicitly spelled out for them so that you know the, the what is taken care of so that the teacher can focus on the how then this isn't a consideration but that's not the case for most teachers i would say the bare minimum that teachers should have is access to something like test base uh, and some kind of training on how to make the most out of it. That can be a quite a brief thing so that they can see that, oh, I'm teaching this aspect of fractions in year four. This is what it looks like. Not just how difficult it is, but this, this is the variety of questions that, uh, that children might need to be able to deal with. Test base and planning using test base is one of the most valuable things that teachers can do, both to make sure that they're teaching to a decent level, but also to ensure that they're developing their subject knowledge. 
So yeah, support with pitch and variety using something like TestBase. Obviously, I was lucky when I started teaching, there was a document called pitch and expectation for every part of the national curriculum. It bothers me that that doesn't exist now. I think it should. I, if I, In an ideal world, uh, maths coordinators, senior leaders, whoever may be in charge of this at a school are able to put together something equivalent to a pitch and expectation document, assuming that you don't have in place the sort of prescribed curriculum that can be delivered by some of these curriculum products that involve textbooks, etc. I guess the last thing to mention, again, this covers old ground, is this little and often content that I keep going back to. What is it? When are you introducing it? And when are you making sure that it comes across? And sometimes that can be as simple as defining some standard end-of-year expectations. Some of those are already defined for us. The end of year four, children do need to know their multiplication tables for the multiplication table check or the multiplication division fact check, whatever you want to call it. But it's not just that. The things like number bonds, how to use them, etc. How are you making sure that they are studied little and often? If you're leaving it up to individual teachers to just work out where their kids are at and roughly get an idea of what they'd like them to be able to do by the end of the year, then you're probably not going far enough. You really want to be saying, okay, so they're in year three now. Um, we're confident they've learned their number ones inside 20. Check that. If they haven't, then that's what you want to focus on. If they have learned that, well, your little and often practice, amongst other things, relates to the application of those number bonds inside 20. So, yeah, I think just summing up the, the minimum that we would say is necessary for any teacher coming to plan at a given point would be they need a sequence of learning points for each topic. They'd need to know what the representations are that fit with what the children have already learned and what they will learn in the future. They need support with the pitch and the variety of a given learning point. They need to know what the little and often content is to make sure that their mental arithmetic is going to be what you want it to be as they progress through school. And they need reasonable support from maths coordinators, subject leaders, more of just more, sorry, maths coordinator, the subject leader, or more experienced teachers, if they are those that are maybe a little bit less experienced. Do you think that covers the, the key aspects of what we'd think is a bare minimum for teachers to have when they come to plan? I think so. Um, I think certainly as much as we can hope to get across in a two-way conversation, you know, I think because with each different person you speak to, the context opens up different possibilities, different things that, oh, actually in this specific situation, I would recommend this. But I think, you know, that those are for, broadly speaking, you know, really, really useful sort of set of bullet points to work towards, you know, because I think the better we support our inexperienced teachers, you know, and we, and we keep banging this drum all the time, and the better off everyone's going to be, because then they become experienced teachers who are proficient, you know, and who are still in the profession. And then they can go on to help us when we want to make more, you know, you know, turn novice teachers again into more experienced teachers and the cycle keeps going, you know. So I think, um, you know, we could do a lot worse than, than, what we, than what we've outlined. Okay, so with that, I think quite nicely wrapped up, it brings us on to the final section, which is the questions that we have from people on Twitter or in some cases, YouTube. Um, the question I have for you, Kieran, that 
I'll be honest, this is just my question. It's not someone off Twitter, but we met on Twitter, so this kind of counts. Is um, what does series two of your podcast hold for us? That's a good question. Um... It is. It's a damn good question. And I think, you know, possibly one that people are are wondering about, you know, wondering when <laughs> the end of our monologues will, <laughs> will come. I'll probably cut that bit. Um, no, in, in, so for season two, we've got plans to look at things in a bit more of a subject-specific way. So we've got some interviews pertaining to history, geography, you know, music, RE, you know, all those things that we sort of touched on in season one but with some real experts in reference to primary in, in their fields, you know, so lots to look forward to. Um, and I think as soon as possible, you know, because we're always um, doing these episodes in our own time, as well as having full-time jobs and, um, you know, we, we'll get them out there and, and there's, there's some real stuff to, um, to look forward to, you know, so some of the ones we've recorded so far have been, have been fantastic. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to those. As a, as a fan of the podcast, as well as someone who is delighted to occasionally appear. So I think on that note, all there is left to do is say thank you very much, Christopher, for joining me once again. My pleasure, as ever. And to everyone at home, thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next time.